Welcome to Talkumentaries, where we'll discuss a different documentary each week. This week we're discussing The Keepers, the 2017 seven-part documentary series about the unsolved murder of a nun and the horrific secrets and pain that linger nearly five decades after her death. It's directed by Ryan White and currently streaming on Netflix. This podcast will contain spoilers, so listen at your own risk. Before we start our discussion today, we wanted to give a trigger warning. Our discussion today will contain information about sexual assault and violence, which may be triggering to survivors of childhood sexual abuse and rape. Remember that you are not alone and confidential help is available for free. Anyone affected by sexual assault, whether it happened to you or someone you care about, can find support on the National Sexual Assault Hotline. It's open 24-7 at 800-656-HOPE. We have a lot to talk about with the keepers. Yes. And we talked about that trigger warning before starting to record. And we talked about how we have covered documentaries before that involve sexual assault and have not had a trigger warning for those. And I think this one is somehow so different because for a lot of reasons, this just felt a lot more troubling and a lot more, maybe because there's not a great resolution to it. There's not a whole lot of, uh, I don't know. I don't even know how to articulate why <laughs> this is so disturbing. Yeah. Plus the fact that you're dealing with childhood sexual abuse mm-hmm. and it's perpetuated by trusted people in their lives, yes. you know, in the church, priests mm-hmm. who are... Who have repeated access to children. Yeah. And the trust of families and the community. Right. It's just yeah, so, so disturbing. But I want to start by talking about the two women at the heart of this sort of amateur investigation going on. Yeah. I love these two women. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> oh my God. Evie and Gemma. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. They were students of Sister Kathy's. And when they went to the high school where she taught their high school, which was Keogh, a Catholic high school in Baltimore, they said they had no idea that this situation was going on where the school's guidance counselor, a priest, Father Maskell, was abusing fellow students. Mm -hmm. And so then later, when Sister Kathy had left that school and she had actually gotten permission from her what's it called her sisterhood or (laughs) gotten permission from her superiors (laughs) to go teach at public school and wear plains clothes she went missing uh, after Mm. going shopping one evening and then they found her body a couple months later like she went missing in november and was found in january right so these two women started off wanting to investigate that it was troubling to them that after all so many years this beloved nun and teacher you know the her murder had never been solved and knowing nothing of the additional craziness they were going to uncover that had happened at that school they just wanted you know to know they and they said repeatedly that they, we just wanted to know who hurt sister Kathy yeah and uh little did they know what a heap of mess they were in for discovering. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this happened in 1969. Well, she went missing in 69 and then was found in January of 70. Mm-hmm. So it's been decades, and this is still an unsolved crime. One of the things mentioned in the documentary is a Facebook group. 
Gemma and Abby had originally started it and survivors from Keough High School, that was a safe space for them to Mm -hmm. discuss issues and connect with each other and also a place for people to brainstorm, you know, and look at the elements of the crime and try to help solve it. And when the documentary came out, Facebook had to shut down the group because of what they call, quote, a technical glitch Mm. and heavy traffic. Mm -hmm. So that's been temporarily shut down, but there is a publicly viewable group that's open now that I've been a member of for a while. And it's a fascinating place because there's so much discussion about theories and people coming forward. And for example, people in Wexford, Ireland, where Father Maskell moved, you know, they chime in with things, you know, their experience uh, or people they know uh, who live there, their experience, that sort of thing. Uh There are a lot of discussions about you know who it could be and why people think it could be a specific person Uh, for example one of the people mentioned in the documentary by one of the victims is a brother bob Mm. and the victim named gene had said that at one point brother bob had actually confessed to killing sister kathy but Uh she cannot remember who he was or what his face looked like she's suppressed that memory and she hasn't been able to retrieve it yet yeah so there has been some very interesting discussion on the facebook group about who brother bob might be because there were a couple of uh important people named bob in father maskell's life Uh and what's also interesting is how connected these people who keep getting discussed, uh, Father Maskell and the Bobs, are to the first police officer that showed up at the scene of the crime where they found the body. Mm. You know, Scannell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. They interviewed him in the documentary. He has since died. Mm-hmm. He died in October of last year. But when you start peeling back these layers, This is a crazy, crazy case. I mean, when I first started hearing about this, you know, Netflix has been promoting it a while. I thought, oh, you know, it's back in the 60s, a nun, you know, it's an unsolved crime. It's probably going to be fairly dry, straightforward. This is a crazy, crazy story with so many different things going on. Yeah, for sure. The story begins with Sister Kathy in 1969 is a nun, and she shares an apartment with another nun. Both of these women, having worked at Keough, the Catholic girls' school, have just started a new sort of task, working in plain clothes at a public high school. And they share an apartment, and Sister Kathy uh, has a sister who has become engaged, and Sister Kathy goes to run a couple of errands, including buying an engagement gift for her sister. And so she goes to cash a check. She goes to buy some kind of baked buns or something. It sounded like it must have been some kind of regional favorite. I didn't understand what they were talking about. But anyway, some (laughs) kind of baked good. And to pick up this gift for her sister. When she isn't home, after several hours, her roommate, the other nun, Sister Russell, calls a priest that they had both worked with at Keough, the high school, and that is Father Jerry Koob. And Jerry Koob had a very close relationship with Sister Kathy, which he insisted was just a close friendship, but uh, there's 
letters and stuff that you discover later on that sounds like it might have been a little bit more yeah, than that. and apparently uh, this was another thing I saw in the Facebook page. An article was published quite some time ago that did say that he admitted that they had had a sexual relationship. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, he, yeah, he I feel did, like they did, must have. Because later she have. was writing him a letter about her period finally came. And I yeah. discussed that with any man I hadn't been <laughs> getting busy Exactly. With. <laughs> and she did say that she wanted to have his children in that letter. Yeah. But the other thing about that letter that was weird was it was typewritten. And it was a very intimate letter. And she said she was in bed while she was writing it she snuggled up in bed so that was kind of weird to kind of throw yeah yeah so sister russell calls this priest who then grabs another friend a fellow priest they come over to the apartment and they all break bread and have communion while they wait for sister kathy to show up now i don't know if that's just how you pass time when you're super catholic (laughs) if it's got something to do with trying to conjure her up magically uh, because everybody's so worried i don't know what the deal is with the having communion but that's what they did and sometime later her car is discovered just steps away from the door and where she would ordinarily park. Yeah. They, but it's covered in mud. The tires are covered in mud and there's a twig hanging off the gear mm-hmm. shift when they open the door. Yeah, they had actually <laughs> called the police at around one thirty, and the police came and took the report and then about an hour later they found That's the right. car. That's yeah. right. So in the middle of the night her car is discovered but not far at all from where it should have been but it's clearly been somewhere else because the tires are muddy. There's a twig hanging off the gear shift and they also find evidence of the cash check and the purchased baked goods mm-hmm. but the last errand she had to run the picking up of the engagement gift is kind of up in the air about whether she was able to complete that or not mm-hmm. so somebody got her drove her to someplace muddy and twiggy <laughs> from the looks of it and then returned her car to just about where it was supposed to be already but it was parked in such a way that it was kind of hanging out mm-hmm. into the road and they said it appeared that whoever put it there wanted it to be found yeah because it wasn't just squirreled away right privately somewhere it was in the middle of the road yeah so that's all they have to go on when they start investigating all this but i loved the women so much just because throughout this investigation it's clear how determined they are and how well their skills complement each other right there's one who's very comfortable going out and talking to people and knocking on doors and having you know face-to-face conversations with people and then there's the other one that i relate to so much more (laughs) yeah who's prefers to do the googling and the library visits to look at old microfiche and all that stuff right and so they work very well together they both have areas where they excel and they Mm -hmm. are excited to get back together and compare notes Mm -hmm. yeah and the other thing i really liked about them is they fully admitted on screen that they had no idea that this sexual abuse was happening at the school when they were there and they were both doubtful of the these outlandish stories at the time because in the 90s when it first came out that someone had come forward with allegations of sexual abuse against father maskell they said they were both doubtful especially when it came out that so much time had gone by because her memories were suppressed and Mm -hmm. they she was just starting to recover her memories of these horrific events and uh, you know abby said you know i am someone who needs to see the facts i I need the proof Mm -hmm. because as we're hearing these stories and watching the screen i mean i really wish at the beginning of this i had thought to myself i need to track the number of times i say wait what because yeah it's so crazy i mean these things would just fly off the tv and i would be like whoa so 
it made me feel better that the people that were investigating this had felt that same way. Yeah. And as they delved into it more and more, these stories didn't seem quite as crazy. You know, these are not made up stories. These really happen. Right. So that I think that part of it was important too. These are not people who had no tie to this, who are coming in Mm -hmm. and looking at this. These are people who were like, that's my school. That's crazy. But then now they're like, whoa, we need to really pursue this. Yeah. So the abuse part of it starts with Jean, Jean Wainer, who uh, was a former student. And at the beginning of all this, she's starting to recover these memories in the Mm nineties decades, two decades after this all occurred. Yeah, and the, the trigger for that was she and her husband were buying a home, and a former classmate was her realtor, Yeah, and they were getting ready to have a class reunion, and the realtor said, hey, you should come to the class reunion. We're going to do all this fun stuff, and Jean's like really resistant to it, and she couldn't figure out why she was so adamant about not going, Right, and started really yeah. exploring her memories. Yeah. And she was still a very religious woman and spent a lot of her day in prayer. So she just decided that's what she was going to do to get to the bottom of this. Why her whole being resisted going to this reunion. She decided to spend time kind of meditating and thinking what is going on here. And so memories started to bubble up to the surface. Terrible, unpleasant memories of Father Maskell. Actually, it began, she went to confessional to talk about some feelings of guilt that she had from an uncle who had abused her. Mm-hmm, as sexually. a child. And she had all kinds of complicated feelings about that. Went to confession to talk about that. And the priest that she confessed to in that little booth, instead of using that information to comfort her or get, you know, the uncle punished in some way, he used that to determine that she was an easy target and thus her nightmare with Father Maskell began. He right. basically handed her off to Father Maskell. And yeah, that was Father Magnus. Who that's right. Yes. She had said that wasn't the, like, he later did, I guess, jointly molest her with yeah. Father Maskell. So she's at, the more time she spends thinking about it, the more specific memories of different incidences of abuse come up and different people who were involved. Father Maskell invited others to join and there were police and there were other priests mm-hmm. and there were... Um, and Father Maskell's brother, Tommy, was a Baltimore police officer. Right. And Father Maskell himself was a chaplain for the police yes. department. And so the state was, police. And the state police. Yeah. Oh my God, so I many know. layers to this, you guys. So... All of these are memories are kind of bubbling to the surface, and eventually she tells her family, who thank goodness her f- huge Catholic family is very supportive of her and believes what she's saying, and join in the effort to try to get other people who, because she, when she goes to the church about this, they say, well, we don't have any proof of this. You need to tell us who else right. this has happened to. They said they needed corroboration. Corroboration from other people. And she said, well, I don't know who else it's happened to, and if I did, I'm not just going to hand their names over to you. That's their story to tell. So her family helps her to get a list of the people who went to that school during those years and send basically a postcard to them saying, if you know of anything funky happening at the school during these years, then call this number. Mm -hmm. And she ended up hearing from a lot of people that it happened to. The lawyer said 40 to 50 responses immediately. So they were, yeah, you're right. They were calling the lawyer. So Mm -hmm. what we end up with is Jean Wainer, the first one who's having all these recovered memories 
as Jane Doe and Teresa Lancaster, was Mm -hmm. that her name? Yes. Is one who also has a lot of very vivid memories of what had happened to her. And she signs on as Jane Roe in this civil suit against the church. And her memories were never suppressed. Right. She always remembered them, but she She thought she was the only one. Right. All, there's all this, you know, testifying and taking of affidavits and yada yada for this thing. And because there is so much controversy around recovered memories at the time, this was during the 90s when there were a handful of cases of people who had recovered memories through therapy sessions. And what it ended up being was that the therapist had really kind of planted these memories in them. And so for that reason, recovered memory altogether became suspect and they decided the suit couldn't proceed because the memories weren't reliable. Well, and, and it was past the statute of limitations in Maryland. Uh, it was seven years was the maximum of, right. to so bring a lawsuit. Right. Oh, I thought the statute of limitations was just for criminal. No, it was actually to bring a lawsuit or criminal. Really? Yeah. Oh, so see, that's I totally why I misunderstood. It, that yeah, part. it was dismissed because of that. I thought it was dismissed solely on the. Well, anyway, so then those two things, which are absurd and I know. now you know completely infuriating, <laughs> meant that they could not proceed with this suit. And you know, meanwhile, we learned a lot about Father Maskell and. A couple of things, you know, he did like in 1990, Mm -hmm. he ordered a cemetery caretaker to dig a big hole and they put a bunch of boxes that Mm -hmm. were wrapped in plastic into the hole, covered it up and reseeded it. Mm -hmm. And that caretaker came forward, you know, when some of these allegations were made public Mm -hmm. and Sharon May who was the Baltimore state's attorney in charge of sex crimes back then Mm -hmm. said she went to the scene as well as a police officer or several police officers and the caretaker and they dug it up and there was one of the police officers who said he was on scene and they talked to him on camera but he was anonymous his Mm -hmm. voice was disguised and we never saw his face Mm -hmm. but he said that he personally saw pictures of young girls nude Mm -hmm. as part of that stuff that they dug out Mm -hmm. And when asked on camera, Sharon May said she didn't personally remember any of that. Yeah. And that was a scene where I thought, well, who who of those two is motivated to lie? Mm-hmm. And I couldn't find any motive for either one of them well, to then, be lying about that. He, he, as the police officer or the detective, you'd think would lie to back up what the police were saying. Yeah. And her, you would think, okay, if she's lying about this, she must be motivated to protect the church, but she wasn't Catholic. Well, yeah, I mean, I think some people speculate, obviously this is pure speculation, that uh, she may have received incentives to look the other way or ignore evidence. And the thing is... There's not enough money in the world for me. I can't imagine. How much money do you need? And how much money would help you sleep at night knowing that you had furthered the ability of this organization to keep... But when you start looking at other things, though, there were all these boxes. It was a huge hole as big as the living room, right, is what they said. Yeah, 10 by 20. But where is it now? It's missing, yeah. No one can All find it. it. Is, yeah. All of it is missing. Yeah. So that's suspect as well. Yeah. yeah. And the fact that, <clears throat> well, I mean, we later learn in the documentary that all of this information about these priests, the records are just not available. Yeah. 
So where have they gone? Yeah. So at the outset, it sounds like two different stories happening, you know, in the same group of people. This nun has been murdered and her murder has gone gone unsolved for so long. And also at the same school, there was all this abuse happening um, Mm -hmm. at the hands of this priest. And it, they seem, you know, unconnected at first, but then you realize that Jane, Jean Wainer, the, the one who, who went on to be Jane Doe in the lawsuit, was very frightened of telling anybody what was happening to her, obviously, because he was incredibly threatening about what would happen to her and mm-hmm. why it was happening to her, you know, that she was giving her the Holy Spirit or something, and he was trying to fix her and make her a good person. Mm -hmm. She was very hesitant to tell anybody what was going on, but Sister Kathy seemed to sense something and basically just said, if something is happening, you know, just kind of gave her an an opening to nod her head if there was something bad going on. And at the end of that school year, Sister Kathy said to her, I'm going to take care of it. I I know something's happening and I'm going to take care of it. And that was at the end of the school year. By fall, she had been transferred to another school to do this plain clothes out in the community assignment. Yeah. And by winter, she was dead. Yeah. And, you know, the day before she went missing, on November 6th, an anonymous student at Keough and her boyfriend went to visit Sister Kathy at her apartment to talk about the abuse by Father Maskell. And... While they were there, Father Maskell and Father Magnus stormed in furiously and ordered the student to leave. And then the next day, Sister Kathy went missing. Yeah. And also that next day at school, Father Maskell called that same student to his office and ordered her to be silent. So I didn't understand how would he burst into this apartment that Kathy, Sister Kathy lived in. It wasn't a part of the school, I don't understand how he would have even known which apartment or how to get in. I'm sure it's not hard to figure out where the two sisters lived. Uh, they had... or, the, or how would he know that the student was there talking to her? I don't... That part of it seems harder to believe. I don't than, know. Than the rest of well, it. And, and was Mr. It... Russell there at the same time? That part, I don't know. That wasn't said. Sister Russell was a big question mark to me. Sister Russell never talked about any of it. I mean, no, they made a point she, to say that. Yeah, and she um, very pointedly mm-hmm. established an entire new life after that. Now, yeah. that, was that just because it was traumatic to have her friend and roommate die yeah. in, in this manner? Or was it because she, or does she knew know more and she's she protecting the church? Bury this old life and start over. I don't know. Um, Back to your question as far as how they would know that someone was there talking to Sister Kathy. Remember later in the series, we learn about Kathy's neighbor who was obsessed with her mm-hmm. and did a lot of weird stuff, but yeah. lived only steps away. And there was some belief by his family that he was involved in her murder and disappearance. All right. So. You know, who knows? This is purely speculation, but he could have contacted the priest. And yeah, so there end up being these two guys who have no connection to the church or the police, ostensibly, (laughs) who have told both. Well, no, one is now dead. The other one is just (laughs) not good on camera. He's Edgar. He's not. Yeah, he just kind of grunts answers to things, but seems to have absolutely no idea what is going on. Um, but both of them, you know, have family members who say he told me this, that, and the other about the night Sister Kathy was killed. So we think he was involved. And their stories, even though they don't appear to know each other, are identical. They both came home with bloody shirts, but no injuries of their own. 
Right. And blamed it on a bar fight. Blamed it on a bar fight. Or like that one guy said he beat up his boss uh, in an argument over a paycheck or something. Yeah. But, but neither one was injured, had blood on his shirt. It was right around the time she went missing. Mm-hmm. And in both cases, their families are the people who came forward with this. And in both cases, they their families said they both kind of lost their minds after mm-hmm. they came home with the bloody shirts, like, you know, and, and one, it wasn't the actual suspect, but his brother started drinking heavily right after that. And one night said he was doing that because they killed that woman mm. and, and then the next took day, her out behind the family business, which is, you know, she was found that's behind their family found. business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then in Edgar's case, you know, he had the necklace that people believe was they the actual the engagement gift. gift. Yeah. Because yeah. it was shaped like a bell. A wedding bell. It looked like a wedding bell. And there was a stone in it that like looked a like a peridot. I think that the jeweler looked at it and said it was just, you know, colored glass. But yeah. They were trying to figure out if that had any significance. And the whole time I'm like, what is her sister's birthday? Like, I know. <laughs> and finally you find out her sister's birthday is not in August, which is the birthstone that would have matched, but her husband's is. The, yeah. And, and apparently Sister Kathy was very excited that she was going to be marrying this particular man because he'd been very kind to her. So she's, she thought that that would have been something that Sister Kathy would have picked out for her. But it, it is odd for this man to have given it to his wife, who seems... They, like they barely tolerated each other, and then mm-hmm. and he was broke. Soon split after, yeah, he was broke. So what an odd thing to mm-hmm. just suddenly present uh, her with. She said he came up behind her and just put it around her neck. Yeah, mm-hmm. as a Christmas gift. Yeah. So can we? So you talked earlier about having several wait what moments. Can we talk about <laughs> the big one? I want to see. Well, it's like every episode was a wait what. At least yeah. one. Yeah. But they every But there was one that I was I like, know. I'm not sure I heard that correctly. Every at episode all. It, it was like worse than the previous episode, right? Right. You're I take it you're talking about throwing the vagina down on yes! the Yes. <laughs> so What in the world? So, so Jerry Coop <laughs> You know, earlier in the series, I was like, oh, what a sweet man. He was in love with Sister Kathy. He asked her to marry him, and she said no. And I just envisioned this sweet couple. He looked like he was. Yeah, he looked like he was handsome when he was young, you know. Yeah, he was cute. He had this um, self assured manner when he was talking on camera. So then. Oh my God. He starts talking about how after she disappeared, one of the investigators interrogated him at length and it started to get really old because he was adamant about not being involved in her disappearance. He had been to dinner and a movie with a friend. They went to go see, um, what's that? Uh, Um, Born to be wild. Easy rider. Yeah. yeah. So, um, (laughs) so yeah, that seems like a good movie for priests to go see. But anyway, so he's being like interrogated and the detective leaves the room for a few minutes and comes back and throws down this slab of something wrapped in newspaper on the table and says, this is Sister Kathy's vagina. Well, and the way Jerry Coop tells the story, it's not even like he throws something down. He says, oh, and then he leaves the room and I'll never forgive him for this. I'll never forgive him for this. And I'm like, ooh, edge of my seat. What did he do? What did you never yeah. forgive him for? And he comes back in the room and he throws down her vagina. Yeah. And my husband and I looked at each other, do what now? I know, I know, I know, I know. Okay. And then I thought, did I 
take a bathroom break during an earlier episode where they said she was mutilated? In, oh my god! And I I don't understand that at all, and I still don't understand. I don't either. And the weird thing about Jerry too, after that, I mean, everything about him becomes suspect at that point, in my opinion. Yeah, because because that cannot have happened. No. So he said he'll never forgive him for that, and then he turns around and talks about how he has forgiven the killer. Because that's what Sister Kathy would have done. Uh-huh. So, okay, you can't forgive, you know, someone interrogating you. Yeah. And you can forgive the person that killed her. Okay. All right. Let's, all right. right. Whatever. And, but then, you know, back to the letter, did she really type that letter? Mm-hmm. Because it seems so intimate. You know, did they ever look at, was it her typewriter that actually sent it? But if she did or? it, then why would she... Why would he fake a letter from her that basically incriminates him? Yeah, I don't that know. letter is the thing that makes him really seem like, oh, you might have had a little something you wanted to cover up there, <laughs> you know? That's true. The whole thing with him is just weird. He's now a Methodist preacher and married with a family. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, he said it took him about 10 years to get over her death. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it that really be... was a turning point because in the beginning you're like, oh, it was just sort of forbidden love. Right. He was heartbroken and left devastated by it. And then this deal with the and I still don't understand. Is he saying because then that later they talk to a police officer or a detective and I guess ask, is this something that would have happened during an interrogation? Yeah. And that guy answers to say, I don't know of any situation where they would have thrown something down and tried to scare him like that. Yeah, even so if that it was... that sound like if it happened at all, it was just something they threw down some lunch meat. Yeah. <laughs> well, it would but have he, to the be. Way he told it, he, he said it was her vagina. He didn't say they threw something down and tried to make me think it was. Yeah, I don't know. He said it was. Did he unwrap it? I don't know. This is maybe, you know, a little too nitpicky, but can we just recognize that the vagina is not the externally visible part of a woman's (laughs) (laughs) equipment? I just, I don't think, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you would have to take her whole pelvic cavity (laughs) and wrap it in newspaper. And I just don't think that's no. Oh gosh, I just have visions of like you know a flashlight or something being wrapped in <laughs> a newspaper, and yeah. it's terrible. I yeah. mean, this is not something I should laugh at, but I laugh about it every time I think about but it. But it didn't happen. I mean, I feel free <laughs> to laugh about it. There's no way that happened. Yeah. Well, I, and like you said, the detective that they were talking to is he's newly inherited this case. Yeah. You know, they're making a documentary. He's on camera. I really liked him. I thought he ha- he had the proper energy for someone who's taking this, yeah. this case. He had the proper amount of skepticism, the proper yeah. amount of, wait, what? But you he know? probably but, rused the day he didn't just take the job in some other county. Yeah. I'm sure this has just become a total nightmare <laughs> for him. Well, but maybe in a good way, because he's got a lot of eyes working on this case with him now. Yeah. So yeah. I think he's being handed a lot of good information. You know, I thought it was really interesting, too, when uh, they were talking about, you know, the, the guy who was one of the two who was brought forward as a potential suspect by his family. Mm-hmm. I think his name was Billy. Not Edgar, but the guy's dead now. Right. The um, neighbor. Yeah, Billy, the neighbor at the apartments, right. He apparently smoked Salem cigarettes. And when Ryan White, the filmmaker, asked the detective, Mm. did you find evidence in the scene? He's like, yeah, yeah. Did you find cigarettes? And he said, yeah, we did. And he said, were they Salem? And he looked over off camera to someone to confirm. And and, and he's like, yeah, yeah, it was Salem. (laughs) So 
I hope he appreciates having a lot of this legwork. Yeah. That's not part of a case file he has inherited. Uh-huh. You know, like Gemma and Abby yeah. have so much more detailed information than mm-hmm. they obviously have right. that's been handed because over to him. even the police didn't give this guy everything that he should have. Yeah. I mean, his, the case file is full of holes, you know, considering even what it should have in it. So yeah. I'm surprised because there's anything left, considering that, that living room's worth of boxes mm-hmm. that were dug up just mysteriously disappeared. That, as well as oh, the letter. The flooded or something. It, they were buried for years. Yeah. There's no damage you could do to them in a basement that exactly. they haven't already sustained. And the, the fact that Kathy's sister said she received a letter from Kathy that was postmarked after she disappeared. And so they asked the investigator and the new investigator about the letter, mm-hmm. and they don't have that letter. Because her sister never opened it. She never opened Re- it. Having received it, she called her dad, knowing her sister was dead, and here's this letter from her. She called her dad, who had worked for the post office, to say, how could I be getting this letter from her? He yeah. had her read the postmark and said, oh, that sounds like it was mailed after she mm-hmm. died. You need to call the police, mm-hmm. hand that over to them, and don't open it. And so somebody, she handed it to the police. Well, she handed it to it. somebody in plain clothes, and she doesn't know who it was. And now right. it's missing. So it, well, no, because the detective at the end of it said he was aware of a letter and that they had one. He was, what well, they don't have it. Right. They yeah. didn't have it. But if he became aware of it, it came to police at some point. Yeah, at some point. But I, I mean, was it just mentioned? Yeah, and by someone, or did they actually actually know, ever have it? Hurt that she never even opened it. I know. Who knows what it said? Oh, even if it didn't say anything that helps solve the case, to be the last communication you get from your dear sister, you know, and you never got yeah. to see it. And why was it postmarked after she disappeared? Because, I mean, it's not like today where the postal service isn't quite as reliable. (laughs) But they do a pretty good job, I guess, now. But sometimes, you know, I mail something and I put it in a blue box and I realize it doesn't get there until, you know, a while later. But back then, the postal service was really reliable. Yeah. And I think you could count on a postmark being accurate. Yeah. It's just really weird. So because this thing was done in seven parts, there is some weird chronology to it and there's a guy that we meet towards the end of the series who turns out to have a part in the very beginning of the story and that is i don't have his name written down here he was the dentist yeah charles franz charles franz that's right okay so charles franz is a recovering addict and had had a thriving dental practice i think multiple offices oh yeah and But his relevance to the story is that he attended the church that Father Maskell, the abuser, was assigned to before going to this Catholic girls' school. And he tells a story of Father Maskell uh, of being an altar boy. I mean, it's so cliched by now. You hear altar boy and you immediately think, oh, what happened to you? Are you okay? He was an altar boy at this church and uh, went to the school associated with it. And Father Maskell began inviting him to the rectory and giving him the leftover communion wine and abusing him. And he said that was where he first learned to use substances to sort of escape from what was happening. He would chug this communion wine, and then he didn't really have to be present for what was being done to him. So this went on for a while, and at some point he worked up the nerve to tell his mother what was happening. Because when he mentioned to his friends, hey, steer clear of Father Maskell, he's kind of weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, Father Maskell got wind of it, got got word that he was warning his friends, and he 
became very angry and pulled him out of basketball, pulled him out of baseball, pulled him out of all these fun activities that he was able to do. And so this poor kid had to go home and tell his mom, I'm not doing all these fun activities because I'm in trouble. Yeah. But then he got up the nerve to say exactly why he was in trouble instead of going with whatever story Father Maskell had given him. And this guy's mother, God bless her, marched up to the archdiocese and mm-hmm. said, "You're this guy is abusing my child and what are you going to do about it? And made enough of a fuss that he no longer had that job at that church, but he was immediately moved to Keogh High School, yeah. which is where the abuse of the girls now yeah. began. In 1967. And this was the beginning of a pattern, or maybe not even the beginning. It was our first indication of a pattern of them just moving him away from the, but not solving the problem. Mm-hmm. Sometimes he was moved to a school. Sometimes he was moved <clears throat> to another parish. Sometimes he was um, moved into like a protective hospital setting for treatment for yeah. issues yeah. Uh, where nobody could get to him. And uh, at some point he ended up in Ireland. He did go to Ireland and he was, according to a person from Wexford, Ireland, which is where he was, he was actually counseling kids there. And then he wasn't practicing as a priest, but one day the priest for the local parish was sick. So he stepped in. And at that point, I'm not Catholic, so I don't know the term, the proper terms, but the bishop or whoever's in charge Mm -hmm. put an inquiry into the archdiocese of Baltimore and said, is he in good standing? And the archdiocese said, no, actually he's not. Can you just, (laughs) you know, so they pulled him back to Baltimore at that point and said, you know, hey, come on, you know. But the thing about Charles Franz that is so incriminating is that was taken to the attention of the archdiocese. But when Jean came forward yes. and accused Father Maskell of the abuse in the 90s. And they said, we need someone to corroborate this. You need to give us a name. This is the only thing we've ever heard about Father Maskell. They had a name. They knew a guy. He was right down the street. It's a big fat lie. Huge lie. And when this is revealed to Jean in the documentary, she's just... Uh, Can I just you imagine the relief? To hug her. Well, oh the my god! Of knowing that she wasn't the first one, but the gall of them to look her in the face and say, "Well, this is the first we've heard of yeah. this. You need to tell us who else this has happened to," mm-hmm. as if she could know, and as if that's her story to tell anyway. Yeah, you already have somebody. You I already know. know for a fact this has happened before. Yeah. And, um, Horrible. And that it has happened for the 20 years since, mm-hmm. you know, while I've been suppressing these memories and they've bubbled up one by one, he's been doing this to who God knows who since then. Right. And a lot of the people who came forward said they, I mean, they had gaps in their memories, uh, almost like they had been hypnotized or drugged, you mm-hmm. know, as part of this. So, you know, her suppressed memories may not be entirely because she was, you know, practicing yeah. self-preservation. Teresa Lancaster remembered that he gave <clears throat> her a uh, Coke and a paper cup every time she came to type mm-hmm. for him. And ugh, that was how her abuse started. He wanted her, she was a very good typist, and he wanted her to type up some notes for him. And what he would dictate to her basically was stories of abuse of these other girls. And she was supposed to dutifully listen mm-hmm. to and type these things. Yeah. I mean, he just, it's not as though abuse of this kind is any better when the person is groomed and flattered and quote unquote seduced into it. Yeah. But somehow it's so much more horrifying when you think of how he did all of this with just anger and just disgust for them. You know, it wasn't at all, it wasn't the sort of grooming that you usually hear about somebody. Um, yeah employing because he didn't need to groom them they were already in his 
mm-hmm. web. You know, they, he didn't need to lure them into anything. He, they were stuck with him. Yeah. Sister Kathy could not have been the only person working at that school who was aware of what was going on. Yeah. She couldn't have been. Mm-hmm. And there's a quote in the movie Spotlight, which I had not seen until after I watched this. And I mean, it's very good complimentary viewing. If you haven't seen Spotlight, I think that's required viewing as well. But there's a good quote in that that's, and I'm probably paraphrasing here, but if it takes a village to raise a child, it also takes a village to abuse a child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, the church, before I watched this documentary series, I saw the Archdiocese of Baltimore's response to the keepers mm-hmm. and I read it and I was like, oh yeah, you know, that makes sense. You know, they're, they're just very calmly responding and saying, we didn't know about this until the nineties. And once we found out, we addressed it, you know, we're doing everything we can to work with the victims and help them. And, you know, because I'm like, it's the church, and, you know, they do good, whatever. So then I watched the documentary series, and I was like, oh, hell no. This is crazy wrong. Because the church, this institutionalized covering up, and it's also addressed in Spotlight, this is just so wrong. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, how in the world could anyone at any level think this is okay? Is the church that desperate for staff? It couldn't be. I mean, if you're out there doing wrong, is that worse than having fewer people doing right? Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, this whole thing makes such a good case for why do you have this celibacy requirement when I think it's been proven that 50% or more of all priests and nuns are not celibate anyway. Right. Would that help this situation? Maybe not in all cases. Mm-hmm. But it's also, I think, a good argument for why women should be in positions of power. Mm-hmm. <laughs> women mm-hmm. would not cover this shit up. No. I mean, <laughs> right. This is just so crazy. Yeah, it is. And what was especially disturbing to me toward the end of this is seeing the church's involvement in legislation around the statutes of limitation. Mm-hmm. You know, you there, there was this legislation on the table to try to extend the statute of limitations because, as we said before, there was this crazy short statute of limitations that prevented these women from pursuing legal action mm-hmm. against um, the, their abuser and the church um, because they didn't come forward until so long after it had happened. And so the people who were testifying before this committee, this legislative committee, about whether to extend that statute of limitations were abuse survivors, obviously, because they, you know, know you need as much time as possible to report this. Right. And the first person to step up to the podium and uh, testify against it was the lawyer for the Baltimore Archdiocese, who was the same lawyer that had made their life such a living hell when they tried to bring this lawsuit. And his reasoning for the need to have a shorter, a short statute of limitations was that you needed to pressure the victim to report the abuse as soon as possible so that there would not be more victims, which is an infuriating thing to say because you're talking about children here Mm -hmm. who feel powerless to report anything at any given time, who may be experiencing such horrific abuse that they suppress it in the way that these women did. It may be chemically suppressed for them by whatever's in that paper cup. (laughs) And to put blame on them for taking a long time to tell the story, as if they aren't already beating themselves up for whoever else it might have happened to since then. Mm -hmm. It just, I have never wanted to punch through the TV screen as hard as I did when that man was talking. I know. I agree. And then a woman lawyer also got up representing the church Mm -hmm. and 
you know, made an argument against the bill. And the documentary episode, that bill was shot down in committee again. But after the release of the the Keepers, and unrelated, but some progress after the series was filmed, that lawmaker, C.T. Wilson, reintroduced the bill again. It did make it through committee, and it was passed. So as of July 1st, survivors of sexual abuse will have until age 38 to sue their abusers. Yeah. And he presented that bill, sponsored that bill in part because of his own abuse at the hands of a foster parent when he was a kid. Yeah. And so he understood he had more than just, you know, a professional... legislative interest in this in this matter he experienced exactly the things they were talking about so he felt really personally involved in it yeah and i admire him for bringing that up over and over again knowing i mean he had kind of a defeatist attitude about it yeah it was just going to get shot down and shot down and shot down he brought up a good point about he didn't understand how this bill which you know does not appear to have anything negative Mm mm-hmm if this is passed, what are the negative outcomes? You know, you can't come up with any reason. Mm-hmm. Why that suddenly became known as an anti-church bill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. If the church is really trying to help victims, mm-hmm. why are you opposing this bill? Well, that was why they were doing all these mental gymnastics to paint <laughs> it as a short statute of limitations means that victims are going to come forward sooner mm-hmm. and the abuse is going to stop sooner. Yeah, that's grasping at straws. Right, right. Yeah. But it's like, I mean, you can see everybody in the congregation. Oh, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. If you uh-huh. don't know anything at all about abuse or how it occurs, or even this case alone, how mm-hmm. it unfolded. Well, and he spoke, maybe not directly, but he spoke a little bit to the influence of the church mm-hmm. over the state. And he said, you know, this is not going to make it out of committee. I know it's not going to. And I'm, I'm probably ending my career by saying this. Yeah. But the, the leader of the Senate and the House are going to shut this down, and it's never going to make it to the floor. I can tell you that right now. Yeah. And that's what happened. Right. Right. <laughs> and where do those guys go to church, I wonder? Yeah. Or, you know, who gives them donations for their campaign fund? Right, right. Yeah, but just to stand up as a church and say, well, this is anti-church because you want, you're right. How could, how can you paint that as anti-church? Even if you have come up with some crazy twisted way to make it seem like it's good for everybody, Mm -hmm. your way, how do you think it's against the church to extend it? And it's not even like he himself, you know, you said he was a victim of abuse. His father who ended up adopting him and abusing him, you know, as he grew up was not part of the church. So I mean, his relationship to the church Right. was not there. I mean, he wasn't saying right. priest. He wasn't motivated by anything yeah. anti-Catholic. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't a priest that abused him. Right. So the church coming forward and saying, oh, we oppose this. And it, then it becoming known as an anti-church bill. Right. was just weird. Speaks because to we're this calling whole... it an anti-abuse bill. So if you call it an anti-church bill, then you're making an equation that you probably don't want yeah. to make. <laughs> yeah. So I was... Thinking about how strange it was to see this after I, I had a conversation with a friend about uh, the, I keep calling him the new Pope. It's been years now, the uh-huh. newish Pope. <laughs> and how he seems like such a breath of fresh air after uh, all these other Popes who seem very out of touch and very stoic and very not connected to the people at all. This guy seems to suddenly understand some things, you know, like, and he's, he's much, he's a kinder, gentler Pope Mm -hmm, (laughs) than mm -hmm. I remember seeing in my lifetime. And I was talking with a friend about it not too long ago. You know, the Pope was in the news because of Donald Trump going to visit. Yeah. And I was talking with a friend about, you know, how I don't 
I didn't grow up Catholic. I don't know a whole lot about the Catholic Church, but just as a consumer of news, I'm happy to see this guy. He's a breath of fresh air to me. And my friend said, my friend did grow up Catholic, and he says this new pope is much more in line with the church that he remembers growing up. He went to Catholic school, and even though a lot of people have horror stories from Catholic school about uh, nurses, nuns coming up and wrapping them on the fingers, he remembers the nuns as kind of like hippies. Mm -hmm. They always had a guitar on them, and, you know, Mm -hmm. they would strum a little tune and they wanted world peace and social justice and all like sister Kathy. Yes. (laughs) And so that this movie reminded me of the nuns, the way he described them. Mm -hmm. And it is really hard to square that with this behemoth organization that has done much to prolong abuse and to obstruct justice at every turn. It's really hard to square those two things together. Yeah. Like how much does the Pope know about each? Obviously, I mean, he's, there's been an acknowledgement of abuse and it's not a secret at all. And it's worldwide. It is. Yeah. It's worldwide. And what does he, I, I don't understand how he, he even associates with it anymore. How yeah. do you not just take the whole thing down? Just, this isn't working. We need to <laughs> take it down and start over. Yeah. I don't know. What do you do? I, I mean, I would love to hear an official statement from him mm-hmm. about yeah. not the keepers per se, but the abuse in general. That doesn't make it sound like an isolated incident that acknowledges it's a systemic problem. As we start talking about some of the progress that's been made since the release of the keepers, mm-hmm. um, or at least since the filming of the keepers, at least the Archdiocese of Baltimore has been extremely active mm-hmm. in defensive mode. Tweeting, mm-hmm. uh, if you're on Twitter, it's Archbalt is their Twitter handle. The director, Ryan White, did an Ask Me Anything on Reddit, Mm -hmm. and the Archdiocese showed up as part of that and started to interact with Ryan White. Really? Yeah. So what happened was the Archdiocese of Baltimore declined to have anybody appear in the series on camera. Mm -hmm. So instead, they answered questions through email, and White read them to participants who said they suffered abuse at the hands of Father Maskell. And that's really what we saw on camera. So during the AMA, White was asked, who would you most like to talk to, still living, that you think has information? And he answered the archdiocese. They have internal records on Maskell. I would love for them to be transparent and show the world what they have. I'm especially interested to see the files on the investigation they supposedly did in the 1990s after Jane Doe came forward. Jean's family found dozens of victims just by sending out a letter in the mail. So I'm confused on what this archdiocese investigation involved. So in the series, the archdiocese said they had no records of Maskell's misconduct or abuse until Jane Doe came forward in the 90s. So their answer seemingly contradicted the story of Charles Franz, who we talked about, who said Maskell abused him before the abuse took place at Jane Doe's high school in the 1960s. Anyway, they chimed in on the AMA and just reiterated what they had said in their written responses. So they just have a social media director who just sits there waiting for things (laughs) to come up and then copy-pastes the talking points in. They published on their website a frequently asked questions about the keepers. But I didn't look at it until after I had watched this, so I immediately was like, oh, hell no. I know. (laughs) If I'd read it before, I might have thought, yeah, that sounds reasonable. (laughs) I'm keeping it open. That's what I did. I was like, yeah, yeah, you know. Then, as I watched like the first episode, thought to myself, well, okay, 
the poor person who wrote that for the Archdiocese of Baltimore probably believes that in earnest. And they're they're probably, it was genuine, you know, whatever. By the end of the series, I was like, no, this entire establishment is corrupt Mm -hmm. and should be burned to the ground. Mm -hmm. And just, (laughs) right? (laughs) But yeah, it was funny that they showed up in the AMA, but they didn't want to have anybody on camera. Another thing that's come up since the filming investigators exhumed the body of Father Maskell and tested his DNA against evidence collected at the scene where the body was discovered, which may have been that Salem cigarette that was smoked. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it did not match. Right. But that's not surprising no, to me. I don't think he was necessarily even there. Yeah, I don't think his hands are dirty as far as the murder. Yeah. I don't think he actually physically did it. Yeah. But personally, I do think he was involved. Yeah. Something else that's really interesting to me, earlier this month, a woman came forward through an attorney in local news outlets claiming to have been sexually abused in the early 1970s by a deceased Baltimore County police officer who was associated with the Sister Cessnick case and with Maskell. Who was it? When contacted by homicide detectives, the woman declined to be interviewed and wished to stay anonymous. But who was the guy? Who- she won't, she didn't say any more. She just said Bob. it's... Well, <laughs> it's a police officer. So there's also speculation that it was Scannell because he was so heavily involved. Was right about him when he talked. He was a low talker. We always had to click the volume I know. up five clicks to hear him talk. He was, there was something off about him. There was an older article, like from the 90s, when Father Maskell was first accused. And, you know, it was in the press. And Scannell was quoted as as what a good priest he was, and he baptized his grandchildren, and he took him fishing and hunting and hung out with him, and they did ride-alongs together. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. But that same article also talked about Reverend Robert G. Hawkins, pastor of St. Rita's Roman Catholic Church in Dundalk. He apparently hid Father Maskell at one point, and his hand was slapped by the church for doing that. But they had been friends for a long time. Like, they attended St. Mary's Seminary together, so they would have referred to each other as brother because of that. Mm. He was quoted in the article as saying, uh, Father Maskell is a good friend. They'd known each other for 34 years. He's a fine priest, intelligent, and a hard worker. Any charges against him are absurd. He's a fine man. That's one of the Roberts that was in his life. One yeah. of the brother Bobs. Yeah. Um, Has Jean had a look at him? No. She's still trying to remember who brother, brother yeah, Bob was and bring Jean, his face to... She said she didn't want to see potential because it would influence her memory. It's true. She's just got to wait for it to bubble up. You know what was an interesting aspect of this from her memory was that she uh, recalled, as these abuse memories began bubbling up, she mm-hmm. also had a much more horrifying memory of being taken by Father Maskell mm-hmm. out to the countryside to see the body of Sister Kathy. Yeah. And showed it to her and said, well, first told her, you know, did you hear Sister Kathy's missing? Nobody knows where she is. Well, I know where she is and I'm mm-hmm. going to take it to her. So he takes her over the river and through the woods to this body and her memory of it is that she fell to her knees next to Sister Kathy and brushed these, there were maggots on her face. Mm-hmm. She brushed mm-hmm. these maggots away from her face trying to like will her to wake up and help. Right. And that she, you know, realized she was dead and that Father Maskell said to her, this is what happens when you talk badly about, mm-hmm. about people. 
And so obviously that would scare you into never breathing a word to anybody right. um, ever again. And so since this was part of her story, with the abuse and everything else, the detectives immediately dismissed it and said, well, that is impossible because there wouldn't have been maggots in November. So, mm, mm-hmm. so much for your story. And when she said that, I thought, yeah, that's true. That's That makes it a little less believable. That's got to be something that her brain mm-hmm. just sort of dreamed up and it got confused with real events. I don't know. And then later you find out these two women go, well, let's, let's, look at how, let's have a look at the weather records for those days. Who knew there was weather reports going back into, like, eternity? And they looked and found that it was unseasonably warm that early November. Yeah, it was in it the was 60s. In the 50s and 60s. And Flies come out totally yeah, in the, in the absolutely. 60s. Absolutely. And yeah. there was in her autopsy, when they finally got a hold of the guy who did it, who could tell them about it, he, he was, said... He said there were maggots found in her throat, I think. Definitely. It was what I thought was really fascinating too is Dr. Warner Spitz did the autopsy. Yeah. The famous Right. What are the odds? Autopsy <laughs> expert who's in every documentary. But yeah, I loved it when he was actually working as a medic in the medical examiner's office. He worked on this autopsy and confirmed, just like you said, there were maggots. But remember when they went to talk to Scannell, who was, again, the first officer on the scene, good friend of Father Maskell, mm-hmm. he said, no, no, there weren't any maggots. Mm-hmm. So Scannell is now dead, and a lot of these people were dead before the thing even started. Yeah. Sister Russell, I would love to know, you know, Kathy's roommate, I would love to know her story. Yeah. She died years ago from cancer. Father Maskell finally died in 2001 mm-hmm. himself. And Father Magnus is dead. Yeah, so we, there's a... People I would love to talk to and people I would love to punch, and they're all dead. So. Well, we could punch Edgar. I mean, <laughs> Edgar did you is notice a very punchable person. Edgar had a big pile of stuffed animals on the bed behind him. Did you notice that? No. Oh, my gosh. It was so weird. And he's like 150 years old. That's yeah. I couldn't tell if he still had a luscious head of hair or if that was a crazy wig. I was thinking it had to have been his real hair. can't imagine him putting oig on for an interview, but maybe, you're right. I noticed the hair, too. Cause he had, it looked like he had a thick head of hair as a young man. And then, so when I saw it, when he was much older and he still had, I thought, wow, he still kept that hair. But then when you look at his face when he's being interviewed, his eyebrows are really sparse. You, know, his you feel like he's got that old man just kind of hairlessness from mm-hmm. the forehead down. So how mm-hmm. could that possibly be all his hair? Oh, so creepy. It's weird the details you latch onto when someone is just staring off into space with... Yeah. And slapping answers. He just had the most frustrating answers. Yeah. I mean, he he couldn't tell you anything about the necklace, but he did admit to calling into that radio show that it was him that said he knew who had Sister Kathy's starting rosary. Disguised voice and then just forgetting to use it (laughs) two or three statements in. (laughs) Smart guy there. Edgar. Oh, Edgar. He's Um, so crazy. Another thing, Ryan White has said that he does not want to do a second season because it was very emotionally difficult and painful for everyone involved. But for us just to watch it. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, there is so much going on with the case since there won't be any sort of follow up produced at least the best way to keep up with what's going on is the facebook page mm-hmm. it's justice for katherine sesnick and joyce malecki yeah so we didn't even talk about joyce malecki 
she seemed fairly unrelated by the time I got going, but I guess at the beginning of this investigation, these two women mm-hmm. saw a, a parallel between this woman, Joyce Malecki, who was killed around the same time, and some of the circumstances were the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, she was actually found before Sister Kathy's body was found, and I think the cars were similar. Yeah, the they situation. both had been out shopping. Yes, the they both cars been. were found in a similar way. There were, are actually two additional, and I, I think she her story's included because it's another potential. I mean, who killed Sister Kathy could be completely unrelated to anyone right. discussed in the docu documentary series. Been a serial killer, just kind of. It could have been a serial killer, the and there are actually two additional young ladies whose situations were similar. Yeah, I mean Joyce's story was really sad too, and the Facebook group does include you know speculation and, and leads and things like that mm-hmm. as far as her case. And there is a petition out there too requesting that the FBI honor the Freedom of Information Act request. That was eye-opening. Their FOIA request was years old. Mm-hmm. And I guess there's a time limit that they have to respond to your request, but there's no time limit for when they have to actually fulfill it. Yeah, so they so keep stonewalling. Every three months, they just say, we're working on it, and mm-hmm. that's all they have to do, which is crazy. And people have been making calls to the FBI as well to try to initiate some action mm-hmm. on trying to find her killer. Yeah. Um, so I could see why the filmmaker doesn't want to do a follow-up on this, but I wouldn't mind seeing those two women have their own show <laughs> where they just investigate all kinds of things. Yeah. Because I thought they were so great. They, they are. so organized and well, so yeah. determined. And if, if you go join the Facebook group, Gemma interacts directly oh yeah yeah she posts updates she says we're listening to you thank you so much we love this i hope privacy doesn't become an issue with abby and Gemma. Mm -hmm. you know and and they're able to continue this yeah in the manner that they've been doing because if their work ends up cracking the case and you know really solving something then they need to be properly recognized for it you mean beyond that six thousand dollar reward by the baltimore county police department (laughs) (laughs) They've just been stonewalled at every turn, and to actually be able to solve something in spite of all that would just be Mm -hmm. amazing. Yeah, a website has been created called thekeepersimpact.com, and it's uh, informational resources for survivors and their communities, and also how to donate to the impact campaign that they're implementing for the series, which is called We Hear You. Gemma says that a lot on Facebook. We hear you. Thanks for doing this. The focus of the impact campaign is not only to provide and maintain these resources, but also to expand to offer in-person educational events and additional outreach. And the high school, which is now called Seton Keogh, mm-hmm. is closing this month, I guess, yeah. as they wrap up this school year. This is their last school year, which seems fitting after this documentary series came out that it not continue. Yeah. I wonder what will become of that space. I should blow it up. Be open as another school, or will they raise know. it and put up a IKEA or what? Yeah, I would like to see the whole thing just disappear. I bet a lot of alumni would. Yeah. 
Oh, here's the information. Uh, According to the Washington Post, the Baltimore City Police Department said that police have been working actively on Sesnick's case for the last four years, in part because of continuing tips about sexual abuse claims against Maskell, but that the timing of the exhumation of his body was not related to the keepers. The representative also told the Post that police are pursuing alternative leads, such as whether Sesnick's murder is related to three other young women. The names are Grace Montagna. Joyce Malecki and Pamela Conyers, who were killed in the Baltimore area during that time. They were all last seen at shopping centers. So Baltimore City Police Department is looking at all four. And I think part of the problem here, too, is that they talked about in the series is you've got Baltimore City Police, you've got Baltimore County Police, and then you've got the FBI because Joyce Malecki's body was found on federal land. Mm -hmm. So the fact that these different organizations are having to work on the cases separately mm-hmm. hasn't helped things all this yeah. time so what do you think happened oh gosh <laughs> it's i don't know it would be nice if we could say at least with sister kathy you know it was this brother bob and tie a real name to it whether he's living or dead and you know have some sort of justice and closure but I don't know if we're ever going to get that because so much time's gone by. There's no real good evidence against anybody. At various points in the series, I was convinced it was somebody else. You know, I still could see the two men, Billy and Edgar, mm-hmm. being involved at the urging of Father Maskell. And so that would be all three of them. But mm-hmm. I'm still giving uh, Jerry Coob a little side eye. Yeah. I just don't know. I I wish there was a way to know for sure. But with so much time passed, it Mm -hmm. just gets harder and harder. And, you know, it could have been completely unrelated to Father Maskell, too. And there could have been a serial killer who picked out young ladies who were out shopping. All of the other related, you know, seemingly related cases kind of point to a totally outside one. And like the Billy, the young man who was obsessed with Sister Kathy... And, you know, he had the mannequin in his attic with the habit on. with the Catholic Church. And his boyfriend, Skippy, like the, (laughs) I don't know, this was another what moment. Yeah. His boyfriend, Skippy, (laughs) followed the woman home wearing the habit. So weird. We've talked a little bit about it before, but I have a little bit of a fascination with Baltimore. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It's It's just this crazy town (laughs) and um you know normally the news out of baltimore is all a lot of other stuff crime related and you know police and inner city strife now you've got this whole layer of catholic crazy going on yeah whole brand new level of crazy (laughs) that reminds me of another thing i wanted to bring up um and that was a high point in this for me was that Teresa Lancaster, who was the other woman who was came forward about her abuse and became Jane Roe in that lawsuit, she was so troubled by the abuse and so frightened into submission that she didn't really do any of the things that she wanted to do after high school. She yeah. didn't go on to college. She got married right away. She started having babies at 18, 19 years old. But... As this case went on and as she, you know, became empowered to tell her story and then discouraged to proceed with the lawsuit, she ended up going back to law school in her 40s and getting her law degree. And she has now become a lawyer and she's fighting for justice in cases. And and she even mentioned the Freddie Gray case as an example of 
police being able to cover up whatever they don't want to talk about and don't want to deal with. So, Mm -hmm. um, and she was able to get up and testify as a lawyer in lawyer in front of the committee. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So not just a survivor of abuse. You're right. I mean, that gives me chills that she was able to do that with her life and is continuing to do that. It's great. Yeah, that yeah. was a, that was a high point in it for me. The whole thing was so bleak. It was <laughs> nice to see these little bits of silver lining. I think my take on the whole thing is it's such an awful story, but it's such an excellent series. Yeah. I mean, I really thought this was well done, yeah. well produced. Uh-huh. The imagery, the timing, the pace, the way that everything was presented. Mm-hmm. It was just really well done. I had the same feeling about this series that I feel when I read a really good book mm-hmm. and I don't want it to stop. Yeah. You know, and at the end of it, you long for more. And that's how I feel about this series. And you wonder about the people as if they were your own close personal friends. Like, yeah. I wonder how Gemma's doing. I wonder what's going on, Jean. You know, yeah. I'm going to wonder about these people a lot. Yeah. You should definitely join the Facebook group. Yeah, I will. I mean, there's like 20,000 or more people in it. Yeah, um, I don't know. I should pull it up and see because I'm sure it's growing daily (laughs) and it's worldwide. I mean, people on their post, you know, their support from various countries and okay, this is the new group because they shut the old one down and the name is the Keeper's Official Group, Justice for Catherine Sesnick and Joyce Malecki. And as of right now... Oh, as of right now, there are 56,565 members. Wow. Yeah. Golly. It's just a fascinating place. I uh, went back and did some reading in preparation for today, and Mm -hmm. just a lot of interesting discussion. You know, even little comments like people who grew up in Baltimore during that time period and went to other Catholic schools, and comments like, well, how did those singing girls get away with the short skirts? (laughs) You know, just stuff like that. that I would never think about. Yeah, gosh. Imagine <laughs> realizing after all this time that something like that had gone on at your high school. Oh. Uh, like you say, it takes a village. There were people who knew. There were people they who had to have known. Had to have cooperated with it. And that seems like a good time to maybe uh, end on a high note. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, what do you have? My high note this week is a bit of nostalgia. My husband gave me a swatch, oh. which was my prized possession in the 80s. I think mm-hmm. in 1986 or so, I was begging and pleading for a swatch and I got one and it came with a swatch calendar. And I don't know why they were so cool. Looking at it now, I'm like, this is just like a <laughs> dinky little like rubbery plastic watch, but it was the thing to have yeah. when I was a kid. And I didn't even know they still made them. I mean, I guess I knew Oh, Swatch. is that a new one? Or yeah. is, it's not a vintage? No, no. It's Ooh. brand new. And I, I guess I knew the company Swatch still existed, but I yeah. thought they moved on to different styles. And maybe they did and just came back to this because all the 40-somethings are nostalgic for their 80s <laughs> stuff. But yeah, so this is exactly what I... I mean, even the, the strap kind of has the same... That plasticky it, smell? <laughs> Yeah, so very cool. I don't know. I guess I had been talking about it being my prized possession when I was a kid, and so my husband uh, bought me one. So, Aww, yeah, see. it's pretty. Thank I like you. the Isn't design. It cute? Very pretty. And we used to get these little rubbery things that fit over the top. To protect the screen. Do you remember that? Oh, I had one. And totally. My, mother, my parents got me the swatch for my birthday because I wouldn't shut up about it, but they refused to pay $5 for the little <laughs> piece of rubber to go over them. <laughs> 
And if they even still make those now, I'm sure they're more like twelve fifty. But probably, yeah. So, um, but you could get uh, real enterprising, and with your jelly bracelet, you could twist it around in such a way that it would cover oh, yeah. almost the same way as a because this this face on it scratches up really easily. So, yeah. But you know, so do other watches. Yeah. I wonder why we don't have those little protective wrap things. Know. How come for, that never took off? Yeah, we should. It was the must have in 1986. We should start making those. They'll come back. <laughs> Offer them in different colors. Yeah, yeah. patented or something. We could bring it back. <laughs> they got to do something with it. Remember silly bands? A few. Oh years yeah. There's got to be. A way to recycle those. Factories full of those now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Talk about annoying little plastic things. Gosh. I mean, Uh, we should find a way. You know, you had to have at a certain age that, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Uh, Your daughter might be surprised by her (laughs) husband in a couple of decades. Silly bands. By some silly bands. Oh my God, I remember these. Of course, you know, like millions of them are circulating out there in the Pacific Ocean now. But yeah. (laughs) Yay. Little plastic things. What do you got? Mine's not quite as fun, I guess, but I was surprised. I think it was yesterday. Got the mail. Something had been forwarded from our old address, which our forwarding order is expiring like very soon, within days at this point. And, you know, didn't think that much about it. It was from a company we used to use at our last address, which was a year ago. So uh-huh. it's been a year since we've used this company. So I just thought they were sending something. We want your business back or something. Opened it up, and it's a check for $1,050. What? Yes. And I was like, did we accidentally like pay a bill, like have it on auto pay or something? Because it, it was for our insurance, you know, which we used to be billed every six months. Uh-huh. And so, you know, I looked at it, and they said, the message on the paper said, we overbilled you, and we're refunding your money. Sorry about that. And they also added interest onto it, which, I mean, it was a really good interest rate. So I asked my husband, did you accidentally, like, have a bill on auto pay or something? And he's like, oh, let me go check. And came back and said no. So there must have probably been some sort of internal audit. And they discovered that they had apparently at some point in the past overcharged us to the tune of $988. And then they paid us interest. Yeah, so that's. That's my happy place this week. Oh, for sure. No, that's much more fun than a swatch. Are you kidding me? (laughs) All right. Well, I think that's it for the keepers. Yeah. That was so good. Yeah, really good. Thanks for joining us. And if you haven't already, check us out on Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash documentaries. You can also send us an email at talkumentaries at gmail.com. And if you haven't done so, be sure to go out to iTunes and rate and review us, or at least just rate us. We'd really appreciate it. (laughs) Talk to you next week. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.
Thank you.